Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. I'm Rick Barry, a staff member here at Grace Downtown, and this week we're bringing you part two of Professor Howard Griffith's three-part class on the meaning and history of the Trinity. This week, he digs deep into the academic side of the concept of the Trinity. How did we come up with the language we use to describe it? Who are the key people throughout church history? who have helped us understand how the Trinity works, things like that. These are the kinds of questions I had a pretty hard time wrestling with early on in my faith. And if you want to hear them explained by a really knowledgeable guy with a great heart, this is the week for you. This class was part of Grace DC's winter term, a month every year when all three congregations in our network get together and have some in-depth classes on various topics. Throughout this lecture, Dr. Griffith actually stopped to take a few breaks to answer questions from the audience. All in all, we ended up cutting out more than a half hour of question and answer from this recording so that we could keep it at a reasonable length. And because the people asking the questions weren't talking into microphones, so it was pretty tough to hear what they were saying. I'm going to see if we can find some way to send those out in a different format later down the road. But in the meantime, if you have any questions about anything you're hearing today, feel free to contact Matt Miller, who oversees adult education at our church. His email address is matt at gracedc.net. Thank you very much, and here's Dr. Griffith. Thank you so much for coming back. It's great. I uh, love to see you, and um, let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you uh, for the privilege that we have to be together and to study. Um, we're grateful to be able to study about your great self, about your Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And we pray, our Lord Jesus Christ, in your power, that your Spirit would fill our hearts, that we would be able to think your thoughts after you, and offer you the worship that you're due, because we praise you as our great saving God. Thank you for the, the church. Thank you that we're part of a big community, a community that stretches back millennia and that has wrestled with many of these questions and uh, help us to learn from our fathers and mothers in the faith and um, grow together now as a community of people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you should have a, an outline uh, that really lets you know where we're going. What I want to do this time um, is talk about how the church has wrestled with um, God as three in one. The one God who is three persons. Uh, what are the issues that the church has wrestled with? How have certain questions been raised and then answered? Um, and we're going to run through history pretty fast. And I'm not going to give you as much history as I'd like to uh, <clears throat> because we're going to talk about the theology of it. So um, there it is. But uh, you'll be able to follow along, I think, fine with the outline. So let's make a beginning here. Uh, Jesus taught and the church uh, believed that he is God. And I know um, Glenn spoke on uh, this passage in 
the worship on Sunday, John 8, 58 and 59. Let me remind you of this text. Jesus said to them, he's speaking to Jew, the Jews, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he taught about himself this amazing thing, very shocking, very striking, identifying himself with the Lord, I am who I am. The church believed this. The Jews, of course, thought that this was blasphemous, but the church believed, and the church worshipped him as God. So by the year 100 A.D., the last book of the New Testament had been written, and Christians had these convictions. And this was wholesale across the church. There is one God. Salvation comes from the threefold source, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit, their loving helper, is a person. And the Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the basic sort of currency of theological thought uh, right at the beginning of the history of the church. But of course the question is how does all that fit together? Um, in what sense was Jesus the Son of God? And what was the relationship between the Son and the Father? or the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all sorts of answers were given to those questions. Um, some said God gave special powers to Jesus so that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not different persons but different names for the same person. So the idea is Theologically, we use the, the, the word to describe that called modalism, modalism, meaning that um, it's, there's only one person in God, but that he has different modes of making himself known. Early on, um, there were quite a number of teachings to that effect. Others said this, Jesus was not God's son eternally, but he was a man who became son when he was adopted by God at the resurrection. So that's a, that's a certain approach. We call that adoptionism. Of course, all isms are bad. You know that. But, um, so so he, di he didn't have an eternal personal deity, but it was a special human being. Others would say this, Jesus is the Son, but not God. He's a superior creature who serves as a kind of mediator between God and the world. And you can tell, of course, that these views um, that various people held are held today by many people, various camps and theological positions uh, within the Christian church. So what I want to do is kind of talk about some of the most important figures from the early church up to the Reformation and sort of highlight the theological importance 
of their insights. This is not exhaustive at all, uh, hopefully not exhausting either. But uh, you know, just uh, these are the people that I think most important and the, their insights most important. The first is Tertullian. You probably have heard his name. Tertullian lived from 160 to 220. And he laid the foundations for the doctrine of the Trinity by giving the church words to use. Interesting, huh? You have to have words. You have to be able to articulate. You have to be able to express certain things. Um, he was trained as a lawyer. He was a, a, a man of letters. And he was kind of an, a, a sort of early charismatic Christian. Um, so he had these interesting views about the Holy Spirit. Well, there was a man in Rome named Praxius. Praxius. Um, and he wrote a book that opposed the gifts of the Holy Spirit and claimed that the Son had no independent existence. So Praxius uh, writes this book. Praxius is, is in Rome. Tertullian is in northern Africa. Um, he said, Praxius said, the Father descended into the Virgin, became his own son, and suffered and died. Well, Tertullian wouldn't have any of that. And um, if you ever get the chance to read him, you can read him. Uh, his his uh, writings are translated into English. You can read them. He didn't hold back. He said that Praxius exiled the paraclete and crucified the father. So he's defending uh, something, and he's saying that Praxius has a very bad understanding. Now, what are the important terms that he comes up with, the words that he gives the church? Well, one is Trinity. Of course, that word is not found in the Bible itself, but he coined that term, apparently, tr the word Trinity, meaning not threeness, but three in one. So tri and unity, Trinity. Trinity, then essence or being, essence or being, and this reaffirmed God's unity. So remember, that's where we were last week when we talked about um, the scriptures and how the Bible reveals in a clear way that there's only one God. And most important is the word person. The word person distinct from essence. The Latin word is persona. And um, here's what he wrote, Tertullian wrote in Against Praxius. Thus the connection of the Father in the Son and of the Son in the paraclete produces three coherent persons who are yet distinct one from another. These three are one essence, not one person. As it is said, I and the Father are one. And he's quoting John uh, chapter 10, verse 30, the statement that Jesus made. Uh, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now you know he's referring to the Holy Spirit when he uses the term paraclete. That's an anglicized um, rendering of the Greek word parakletos, which is what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in, in the Gospel of John, the helper. So, um, let me just read it again. Thus the connection of the Father in the Son and of the Son in the paraclete produces three coherent persons who are yet distinct one from another. These three are one essence, not one person. As it is said, I and the Father are one in respect of unity of substance, not singularity of number. 
So see the distinction that he's making? He's distinguishing person from essence in God. He's talking about uh, multiple number, father and son, two, two persons, but um, one being, one essence. The word that he used was the word persona. A persona initially in Latin meant mask. It was the kind of thing that actors wore in, on the stage to distinguish one character from another. So mask, but then by extension, an actor in a play. And then later the word came to mean someone who performs distinct tasks. Now Tertullian was a lawyer, and so he understood um, legal accountability. He understood different persons doing different things that had a certain um, uh, account that had to be given of them. Um, so with this word person, um, he distinguishes the three uh, from the one essence of, of God. Now Augustine, St. Augustine later on, uh, a couple hundred years later, gave this qualification about the word persona. He said, in using the word person, we are not speaking in order to say something, but in order to avoid being silent. Now that's a little bit pessimistic, isn't it? But what he's recognizing is that we're talking about, the church is talking about something that's very, very profound. And that human language isn't capable of capturing all that, that God knows about himself. Let's put it like that. So Augustine is recognizing this, and I think the church has been very cognizant of this for the most part. That is, we don't know everything about God, and we can't say everything about God. The whole truth about God can't be spoken by human beings. But we can speak truly without being able to speak fully. And that's, a, that's an important part of, of the task of understanding theology, because we're made in God's image. And because we're made in God's image, we're created to be able to speak, because God is a speaking God. And God reveals himself to us, not exhaustively, but truly, in language, in words. And so Augustine, very humbly, I think, and rightly says, we're speaking in order to avoid being silent. Now, what's the value of this, of this term person? Well, first of all, the word person helps us see that the distinctions between Father and Son and Spirit are real distinctions. They're real distinctions, not just names. Father, Son, and Spirit are not just names or modes of one person revealing himself. Praxius is a modalist, and others have the same view. So. What are we saying? What we're saying is that in God himself there is one essence, but three distinct persons. Three distinct persons. I've repeated that a number of times. Think about Jesus' baptism with me. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus is praying. Then he is baptized by John. The Father speaks from heaven. You are my beloved Son. In you I am delighted. The Spirit 
descends upon him in the form of a dove and rests upon him. Now see, think about that. It's impossible to explain this in terms of one person taking on different modes. It, it won't work. Or different roles. So there are real distinctions within God himself. And then second, notice that these three act as distinct agents. This is the second value of the word person. They act as distinct agents. The Father and the Son and the Spirit not only act with each other, but they act on each other. They act with respect to each other. Each one is conscious and self-conscious. Think about this passage with me. Jesus is praying. The Father, now, who has delighted in Him eternally, is now delighted in His willingness to fulfill the redemptive purpose. That's the significance of Jesus taking on the baptism. The Father has been delighted in Him already. Now He's delighted in His willingness to fulfill the purpose of redemption. The Father speaks. He strengthens the Son with His speech. And He gives the Holy Spirit to Him to strengthen Him for His task. The Spirit descends. The Father is not baptized. Jesus does not descend. The Holy Spirit does not speak. Okay? Uh, that just indicates, it's just simple, just looking at what's there. But what we're seeing from what's there is that um, these, are, these are agents. These persons are those with distinct agency. Um, if we go back to John chapter 1, remember as we read last week, um, it, it was specifically the Son who became flesh. It was the Son who was crucified for us. The Son. It was the Son who was raised from the dead. Okay? So, person helps us understand distinction, helps us understand uh, agency. And then, thirdly and wonderfully, person equals relationship. Person equals relationship. There are relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like the relationships between human persons. Like them. Not identical to them, but like them. So the Bible calls Christ the Beloved Son. Colossians 1.13. Uh, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on uh, the privileges of the believers in the church in Coloss. And he says, uh, you are beloved in the beloved Son. So how does he define Christ? He calls him the beloved. He's someone who's beloved of his Father. Um, John calls him uh, the only begotten Son or the one and only Son in John 1.18 and John 3.16. Remember John 1, as we, as we read that, um, uh, Christ is the Word who was in the beginning with God. John 1, verse 1. So this is a person with a person. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are persons. They can be worshipped and loved and thanked distinctly. Um, and then last, person means affection and emotion. It means affection and emotion. 
Think of this passage, very, very familiar to us. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And the Holy Spirit produces these things in us. Love, joy, peace, patience. Because He knows and He experiences these things. How could he produce love in us if he didn't know what love was? How could he give us patience if he didn't know what patience was or gentleness, kindness? See, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life as a person is the, re the result of the work of the Spirit. Now, there are limitations to the word person. And the church has struggled with the word person. Um, because the three persons in God are not separate from each other, but they're one being. Okay, They're one being. They're not three gods. Um, and that's not true of any other person that we know. But even though that's difficult for us, I think, to use that word, it's hard, to, I think, to improve on the word person because it means someone choosing someone willing, someone acting and relating. And remember, we are created as God's image. And here's an important corollary, or if I was British, I'd say corollary, but I'm not. Just uh, for fun. The, uh, we're created as God's image. He is not created as ours. That might sound obvious, but part of what it means is God is not limited by our ability to describe Him. Okay? In other words, human language doesn't limit God Himself. We're not making up the words of the Bible. We're receiving those words from God Himself as He inspires human beings to write those words. They're perfectly human, and they don't describe God exhaustively, but it just goes like this. See, we have an analogous relationship to God. We're not identical with God. So He's not limited the way we are, etc. So there are many things about Him that transcend what we are, and yet He communicates with us truly. So I think we can say um, that whatever the limitations of the word person are, um, it's hard to come up with a better word uh, in this respect. Okay, so that's Tertullian. That's the contribution of Tertullian. Okay, let's go on to um, Athanasius. Now, Athanasius and Tertullian pretty much lay the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity. So Athanasius um, of Alexandria in Egypt, his dates are 296 to 373 A.D. Um, when you've dealt with these two, you have a pretty good grasp of the church's teaching here. Um, Athanasius defend, defended Christ's deity. Now, the early church worshipped Christ as God, but of course this raised huge questions. What is his relationship to God the Father? And we saw Tertullian rejecting modalism, the, the proposal of Arius of Alexandria, this is Athanasius' contemporary, about 318 A.D., was that the Son and the Holy Spirit were semi-divine creatures. Semi-divine creatures. 
Arius taught several things about Christ. His, his slogan was, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. So first of all, he denied the self-existence and the pre-existent eternity of the Son. So there was a, he, he began in time would be a positive way to say what Arius was saying. And then he denied that, that the Son is equal with God. And of course that follows from the idea that the Son is a kind of super creature. God, Arius defines God as creator and Son as created. And, he says, there's a complete dissimilarity between them. He, that is the Son, is heterousios. That's the Greek word of a different substance. Okay? Of a different substance. So, as he reads the New Testament, Arius understands Hebrews 1 verse 2 this way. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 2 says this, Through whom he created the universe. That's Hebrews 1, verse 2. Arius understands that as a statement that the Son was a magnificent being, a super creature, through whom God created. Now, think about this. It's important because um, it kind of is, it's important where you start thinking about things. Where do you start? Arius' starting point was that God was... Uh, agenetos, that was the word he used, the Greek word, and it means uncaused, uncaused, or um, unoriginated. Okay, that was the starting point, unoriginated. God is alone, says Arius. But since the Son, being a Son, must have received his being from the Father, thought Arius, he could not, by Arius' definition, be God. So Arius is thinking about Father and Son much like the ancient Gnostics did, as if it were beneath the dignity of the true God to meddle with matter, to deal with the dirty business of creating. Athanasius' response to Arius is quite um, full. And he says, it is more accurate to signify God from the Son and call Him Father than to name Him from His works and call Him unoriginate. Uh, notice that. See, he's saying you're starting at the wrong place. How do you know what God is like? Can He just reason from your observations about the world? Is that a legitimate way to do theology, to understand God? Or, on the other side, and this is of course what he's arguing for is, does God have to make himself known for us to know him? Does God have to reveal himself? And what Athanasius says is the latter. He says God has to make himself known. How has he made himself known? In his son. And so, as a starting point, he wants to say it's much more accurate to think of God as Father than as First Cause. Okay? As rather to think of God as Father. Now see, what's the difference just on the face of it between a Father and a First Cause? This is a simple question, not a hard question. Think about those words. Perfect. 
it's, it's, one's, one's relational or personal, the other one's just completely impersonal, right? So think of praying to God. Oh, first cause. Nobody's ever prayed like that in this room. Well, or if you did, you didn't pray very long that way. Hmm? Because you didn't have a connection with the first cause. Okay? Now, Athanasius is not questioning the, the, the creation of the world, that the world originates with God. He's not questioning that. What he's saying is, where we start is with God's making himself known. And how has he made himself known? He's made himself known through his Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, if Jesus Christ is the Son, what should we call God? Well, we should call him Father. Because Father and Son, see, go together. Now, think of, this is on the face of it, this makes loads of biblical sense, right? Jesus said, pray this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? So Jesus is teaching um, us to pray to God as our Heavenly Father. Now in 325, this wonderful event takes place called the Council of Nicaea. Bishops from every part of the church um, gathered in Nicaea. It's a, a town on the western coast of Turkey. Uh, I'd love to, to go there. There's a city there now. It's not called that now. Um, but they, they had a council there to deal with Arius. And there were three parties in the debate of all these bishops that were gathered together. The Arians, the people who, fought, who thought uh, Arius was right. The Orthodox, Athanasius and his group, and a kind of middle group who didn't want to uh, really draw a line. The anti-Arian party was led by Athanasius. And there were certain political concerns that marred these councils. So you, you'll read about those, and people like to highlight those. There was um, imperial intrigue involved. There were cert certain kinds of politics involved. Um, and that's certainly true. There's no reason to deny that. But the deepest concern of the council was religious. It was theological. Um, the very future of Christianity as a religion was at stake. Arius said the Son was not the same being as the Father. He was heterousios. But if Christ were not God, he could not be the revelation of God. If Christ were not God, humanity had not been redeemed by God. And if Christ were not God, believers had not been united to God. And above all, if Christ were not God, Christians had no right to worship him. If they did worship a creature, they were reverting to idolatry and paganism. And this is why the term homoousios, the same in essence, or the same in substance, was included in the Nicene Creed. It's safeguarded, not merely a theological position, but the whole piety, the whole faith of the church, and the whole worship of the church. Um, so here's Arius. Uh, the son is a, kind of a super creature. He's hetero. 
parousios. He's of a different substance. And Athanasius says the opposite. He says homo usios, of the same substance as the Father. So Father and Son are one God. Now, here's the actual Nicene Creed. This is not the creed that we say when we say, let us stand and recite the Nicene Creed. We actually say this creed as it was modified by the next council. But it's, I guess, too hard to say, let us, let us recite the Niceno Cosmo. Constantinopolitan Creed. I don't know. See, I can barely say it, and I, kn- I know about it. Um, but this is the actual Nicene Creed, uh, which I think I printed for you there. Uh, three articles, like the um, Apostles' Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, seen and unseen. That's the first article. Second article. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, that is, of the substance, usia, of the Father, God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, consubstantial, homoousios, with the Father, through whom all things came into existence. So Christ is one being with the Father. All things are created through Jesus Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So Father and Son create together, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead, Okay, and then the third article, and in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it was very brief. That's all they had to say about the Holy Spirit. But that that wasn't the issue. Mm-hmm. The issue was what's the relationship of the Son to the Father. So their big affirmation was the Son is homoousios, and it was crafted that way. It was written that way in order to say you have to believe this to be a Christian. Okay? It's an excluding statement. No Arian could sign the Nicene Creed. Nobody who held that theology could hold to that. Homoousios meant the persons of the Father and the Son are distinct, and it also meant that the Father and the Son are numerically identical in being. The Father and the Son are the same being, but distinct persons. Um, and there are Arians today, though I don't think they go by the name Arian, but those who hold liberal, uh, liberal theology, those who deny the doctrine of the Trinity, um, a very famous and influential theologian from the 1800s called Schleiermacher, uh, who thought that the doctrine of the Trinity was of no, no use to Christians. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, who reject the deity of Jesus Christ. What was driving them? What was driving Arius? Well, there's a principle as a kind of rationalism in his thinking. He starts with an idea, and then he interprets everything that he reads in Scripture uh, that, that seems to challenge that idea in a certain way. And um, that principle, kind of principle of autonomy or kind of idea that um, we can really understand, we can really explain on the basis of our rational grasp of things um, was, was worked out in a very, very rigorous way um, 
but it's subjected it subjected the scriptures to a kind of um, commitment to this rational autonomy rather than, as it were, listening to the scriptures. And the church recognized this. The main thing that Athanasius said was, what have we been doing if Christ is not God? We have been worshiping a creature. And so you can see it's, it's not just a the theology that's involved. It's the whole life of the community, giving glory to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now think how seriously they take worship, <sighs> right? It matters what you say. It matters who you speak to. It matters what you say to whom you speak when you give glory to God. And this is part of their conception and part of what they hold to. Since Nicaea... 325, the church has affirmed that Christ is the eternal Son, homoousios, or one essence, with the Father. Now, let me, ask you, let me ask this question. What can we say about the importance of homoousios? Homoousios has some very important uh, implications that the church embraces here. First of all, it protects the Bible's teaching that God is eternal love. That God is eternal love. Think of, the, think of the John's letter, 1 John 4, uh, 9, I believe, or 10. I can't remember the verse. God is love. God is love. Now, what all that God is, He is eternally. He didn't have a beginning. He has an eternal existence. And the notion that there are Father and Son eternally means that God is not eternally alone. God is not a one-person God. And so He's not eternally alone. Before He created the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were together, loving one another, delighting in one another, giving to each other. It's really important that we recognize that God is personal and interpersonal in himself. That's, that's the thrust of it. So the Son, think of things that Jesus said. The Father loves the Son and gives all things into his hand. Um, the Son is the Father's equal. The Son is the Father's very nature. The only begotten Son was the object of the Father's love before he became, became the object of our faith. He's the, Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. We put our trust in him. He's our Savior. But before he's our Savior, he's the object of the Father's eternal love. Um, then, the homoousios also protects this, that Jesus Christ is the true revelation of God. That he really makes God known. Think of the interaction that Jesus had with Philip. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now think of that, the, the weight of that statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
So the revelation that God makes is true. The knowledge that Christ imparts is the knowledge that he learned in the bosom of the Father. And his glory is the glory that he had as a son beside his Father. Father, glorify me, he says, John 17, verse 5, with the glory I had with you before the world was. That's eternity before the creation. Um, what he suffered, what Jesus Christ suffered in the New Testament is expressed in terms of his being prepared to lose the fellowship of a father with whom he had had unbroken communion from eternity. So we're talking about the value, the weight, the force, the glory, the wonder of what Jesus Christ is willing to give up in giving himself for our sins. And then we can say most important is that homoousios reveals a God of deepest affection eternally loving his son and yet sacrificing that son for the salvation of the world. The world which he made through the son and which he loves with the son. Now come back to our text, which every Christian believes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Athanasius. Let's go on to uh, Council of Constantinople, uh, 381 A.D. So you see this is a couple generations later. And here the gain is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Lord and giver of life. So the Council of, of Nicaea only said, and the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. But here uh, there's a lot more that the church says. The question was, is the Holy Spirit also homoousios with the Father and the Son? Is he also the same being? Some had taught that he was created by Christ. Basil of Caesarea, a very important figure, uh, his dates 330 to 379. He's one of the Cappadocian fathers that, that from that area of, of uh, Turkey were... Um, very and still are very influential in the Orthodox tradition. Uh, Basil, his brother Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory Nazians, and Basil argued that the Holy Spirit is homoousios. The Spirit is not a creature, but proceeds from the Father. That was the position. And he says this, not by generation as the Son does. So now he's making a distinction between only begotten and a text like John 15:26, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. That's what Jesus says in John 15:26. Not by generation as the Son does, but as the breath of his mouth. Yet not like our breath that vanishes, but as a living essence which has the power to sanctify a person whose relationship to God is revealed by his procession, but the manner of whose being is kept secret and ineffable. So what he's doing is, and these, these guys are trying to be faithful to the Bible and not go beyond it. It's not an easy thing to do. 
bring out all that it says, but don't speculate, don't add to it. And good theology does that. So he wants, what he's doing is, he's saying, well, there's a difference between the Father's relationship to the Son and the Father's relationship to the Holy Spirit. And that difference is called begetting in the Son, in the relationship with the Son, and proceeding in the relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Father's relationship to the Holy Spirit. Now, they're also quite willing to say, we don't know what that means. Okay? We don't know. What does it mean? Well, there's a sharing of life. It's like breath. It's like the Father breathing. Um, but he also wants to say it's ineffable. So there's a care that's given. In 381, the church gathered. This time it was in Constantinople. It agreed on what we call, what we call the Nicene Creed. Here's the addition. And the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke by the prophets. Okay? Um, let, let me just cite this, and I won't take the time to read it, although it would be a lot of fun. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Read about the things that are said of the, the Holy Spirit in that passage. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Um, he inspired the prophets who prophesied about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Um, Gregory of Nazianzen said this. This is a very famous statement. He said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. This is, I think, a very beautiful way to talk about the three and the one. All right, going on to Augustine, uh, 354 to 430. Um, this was an addition to the Constantinopolitan Creed. So now, instead of just saying who proceeds from the Father, uh, the, the Augustine had argued this way, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's called a double procession of the Holy Spirit. The Creed had said, said who proceeds from the Father. But Augustine argued that the Spirit proceeds equally from the Son. And this was approved, this notion of Augustine was approved in a local synod in Toledo in Spain in 589 A.D. So you can see it's a long time after Augustine's death. But it was not accepted in the East. And this is one of the things that we're dealing with in the history of the church is the East is Greek-speaking, the West is Latin-speaking. So they're very, very different cultures, though there was a good bit of unanimity for a long time. But this was more of a local kind of thing. Well, the way the creed was recited in the West added this. So it said... The, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Latin is filioque. Maybe you've heard that word. Um, but this was not accepted in the East. It was finally approved by Pope Benedict VIII in 1044. So that's, you see it's almost a half a millennium later. But this was a huge offense to the East and because the Pope said this is orthodoxy. Of course, the Pope is the, is the Bishop of Rome, and he's in the West, not in the East. Um, and uh, it precipitated this breach that took place in 1054. Uh, and that was the, the breaking of the church, the, the, the first time that the church really broke apart, and it's remained apart, East and West, until this time. 
until now. Um, the objection of the East was and is that it tended to suggest that there are two sources of the being of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the West has had a problem with the idea of a source of the being of the Holy Spirit, but that's another problem in the theology. Um, it is the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit one of origination in any sense? See, in any sense. And of course, if you're going to affirm that each of the persons is eternal and is, and is eternally related to the other two persons, which which Trinitarian theology is working out and wanting to assert, then the idea of one being subordinate to, or two being subordinate to, the Father, the Son and the Spirit being subordinate to the Father, is a problematic assertion. So the West has always wanted to continue to affirm what Augustine was, was arguing for. The East has never uh, accepted it. Okay, John of Damascus, pressing on here. John's uh, dates are 700 to 754 A.D. And John's addition is that he describes the mutual indwelling of the three persons. And he uses this wonderful Greek word, perichoresis. I just love the word. I love how it sounds. Um, well, we're involved in a paradox, right? We're involved in a paradox. The one being... God is given to us in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And this means that each person is identical with the essence of God. We're not talking about three gods. We're only talking about one. There's only one God. And so each person is identical with the essence. And yet the persons are not identical with each other. Now, what do we do with that? Well, here's the solution that John of Damascus proposed, and the early church embraced this, taking its cue from John 14, 11. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And I think this is really right, and I think it's biblical. They spoke of the perichoresis, or the co-inherence of the persons. The three persons interpenetrate one another. In terms of time, the Father, Son, and Spirit occupy and, f and fill the same eternity. In terms of space, each is omnipresent while remaining unconfused with the others. So each is in the other, and none would be who they are without the other. None would be who they are without the other. McLeod um, says this, he says, Perichoresis attempts to explain a special kind and intensity of interpersonal unity to which there is no analogy in human experience. The one hint we're given biblically is Paul's reference to Christ and the church in Ephesians 5.32. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church constitute one flesh, like a man and his wife do. And Jesus himself makes a similar comparison in John 17, 21 to 23. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now, this is just mind-boggling and glorious. Christ himself fills the church. And yet the reality here is an analogy. It's not metaphysical. We don't become Christ. But in God, it is ontological. It is the being of God. The Father does fill the Son. And the Son does fill the Father. And the Holy Spirit, the same with the others. And the reason that marriage is the biblical metaphor for this interpersonal unity of God is that it's a coming together of two distinct lives into an intensity of mutuality that always searches for more. Donald McLeod puts it like this. He says, In the divine existence, there are neither physical nor mental barriers to complete coherence. The mutual understanding is complete. The experience of love is complete. The sharing of common purposes is complete. The cooperative involvement in creation and redemption is complete. In other words, in God himself, there is an absolute oneness of distinct individuals. And that is the model God gives us for what marriage is. It's the model that God gives us for what the church is. For what the church is and is to be. Um, it's, it's so thrilling. It's so amazing. Um, this unity in diversity in God means that the church, in spite of all the diversity that there is, gifts, experience, cultures, lifestyle, the church is brought into a deep unity through the differences. Through the differences. Now I want you to, to, to um, I can't put it up on the board, but I want you to just listen to this. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. I want you to hear the Trinitarianism in it. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Now see, what's Paul doing in 1 Corinthians? He's trying to bring this church where people have all these gifts and all this amazing ability, but they're using their gifts not for love and for upbuilding, but for self-assertion, right? The people interrupting each other in worship services or whatever they're, you know, whatever they're doing. Speaking in tongues without interpretation. This is why in chapter 13 he says, chapter 11 he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 12 he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 13 he talks about love. Chapter 14 he comes back to the gifts of the Spirit. Right? So the, the issue is love. But what he says in chapter 12 here is, well, you, you tell me. Give, give me the Trinitarian terms there. Give, give them to me. You, you heard it. What did you hear? 
pretty straightforward. Just give them to me one at a time. Who are the persons that are just the Spirit? Sure, the Spirit and the the Lord Jesus Christ and God. Right. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what are the words that are used for ministry in the church? Subsequent, they're they're successive in the three verses. Gifts. Gifts. Service. Service. Activity. Activity. Right. All the differences in ability that God's given me, has given you. I can do certain things, other things I can't do at all. In, in the church, I wouldn't build you up at all if I had to do X or Y. Things that you can do, I can't do. Things that I can do, maybe you can't do. See what I mean? What is all that? What all that is, is God, the triune God, manifesting himself in the life of the people of God. Not for the purpose of distinguishing one person from another, but for the purpose of the building up of the body in love. Is that exciting? It's so cool. You know, because it doesn't mean, it means that what God's given me to do doesn't take on some super importance or you. I'm not a specialist. You, none of that stuff. No. What he's given me to do, he's given me to offer to you. What he's given you to do, he's given you to offer to me, to all. And what is that? That's the expression of to use the theological term, the image of God being realized in the life of the people of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God at work in the, the diversity and the richness of who He is. So what makes us different from each other actually unites us. It actually makes us complete. And the passage, of course, distinguishes the persons of the Trinity um, and it stresses, of course, the unity of God and the unity of his working in the body. And this is what the kingdom of God brings. This is what the kingdom of God brings. It brings marriages that are whole. It brings people together. It unifies marriages. It unifies churches. It unifies cultures. This is how God makes himself known through the ministry of uh, the Lord, the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, what the Spirit brings. Um, okay, um, let me stop there and let, let you ask a question before I go on to number six. Anybody want to re- propose a question or perichoresis? I, it's, the perichoresis, is, that's my sweet spot. I love that. I think that's one of the most exciting parts of this doctrine. Anybody? All right, let me, are we still do good? Yeah, we're good. Let's go on to number six, John Calvin, uh, 1509 to 1564. Um, <clears throat> Calvin's contribution was to argue that Christ is God in his own right. And the word that he uses there is the Latin word autotheos, autotheos. Even the giants, Tertullian and Athanasius, had sometimes spoken of the Son as though he were inferior and subordinate to the Father. Not as a sort of crystallized doctrine, but sort of in the way that they use language. They often use the word derived, derived. And when certain people said that the Father alone was God in his own right, Calvin protested that this contradicted every scripture that called Christ God. 
If he is God, he has his being from his very self, or he is autotheos. And this brought the teaching of Tertullian and Athanasius fully into its own. The Son and the Spirit are one and the same in nature with God the Father. And each person, therefore, is God in his own right. So Calvin says, um, says this, he says this um, autotheos uh, word applies to the Son. And then he says this beautiful thing about the providence of God. He says, whenever we call God creator of heaven and earth, let us at the same time bear in mind that we are his children whom he has received into his faithful protection to nourish and educate. And you see, what's happened is Trinitarian theology has it's suffused the thinking of this man, uh, this teacher of the church, and he says, when you think about the way God orders the world, I want you to think about it as the Father. It's your Father guiding you. It's your Father taking you under his care. That's what providence is all about. No? We can talk about it in terms of the sovereignty of God, and that's entirely right. But, but we can't ever take it away from this personal Reality that God exercises his lordship over the church as a father, uh, as a father does. So this is one of the great gains, I think, of, of, of the Trinitarian theology is that we begin to recognize the real interpersonalness of, of God and, um, and his care for us. The Father begets the Son. The Father and the Son breathe the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. So to conclude, um, we can put it this way. God is our great creator and savior. God the Father is the divine person who sent his Son, who upheld him and who sacrificed him out of his love for us. One with Jesus Christ by faith, we become beloved sons, as he is the beloved son. God the Son is the divine person who took flesh, who carried our sins, who loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He is God in that form that did not insist on his own rights, but made himself nothing and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross and whom God raised from the dead for us. And God the Holy Spirit is the divine person who helped the Son in his mission and now carries on that mission by indwelling us and making us like the Son and empowering us to believe and live together in his kingdom and to his glory. Okay? That's, that's a way to get, get your mind around what the distinctives of each of the persons is. Thanks for your patience and listening carefully. And God willing, I'll see you in a week. May I pray for us? Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, we adore and praise you. We thank you for the privilege of thinking about you. Oh, how we thank you that you have loved us with an eternal love and that you have purchased us, purchased us with the blood of your own Son, and that you brought us, Lord, into fellowship with our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us, Lord, and cause us to reflect your likeness, we pray, more and more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.